Welcome to Risk Roundup. The blockchain revolution is disrupting each component of a nation and government is no exception. As the blockchain's benefit of trust, transparency, security, efficiency, and speed are readily applicable to governments, the technology's potential is driving exploration of its applicability at all levels of government across nations. As a result, there is a growing optimism that government blockchain will build trust, protect data, reduce cost, and bring efficiency to nations. The question is no longer whether the transformation and revolution that we are witnessing today on the backbone of blockchain will transform nations and its governments, but rather how will they do so? To discuss government blockchain revolution further, I'm delighted to welcome Gerard Dash and Jonathan to Risk Roundup. Gerard is the president of Government Black Blockchain Alliance and uh, Jonathan is the chief strategist and they both are based in USA. Welcome Gerard and Jonathan. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Jason, it's great to be with you. Thanks. I'm oh, sorry, just three. Wonderful. So each nation's government has many roles and responsibilities. Government's responsibility, irrespective of whether it is fiduciary, legal, or the, to the taxpayer citizens, creates an incentive for ensuring accurate transfer of value between all relevant stakeholders within and between agencies or between the government and third parties or between government and the citizens. So do you think the current system is effective for government's roles and responsibilities? Um, well, <laughs> uh, first of all, we have a lot of different governments, right? And so there are some governments, and I would say here in the U.S., for the most part, uh, people are generally happy with how government works, generally, right? We have a political process, and if you watch Fox or CNN, you know, there's always people complaining about something. But uh, the level of trust in our, in our system is much higher than it would be in a place like uh, Zimbabwe, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, maybe North Korea, right? And so uh, you know, it's a very eclectic answer, right? The system works for some, right? For those who are in power and have a great deal of control, it works great for them. Uh, for a lot of people, it doesn't. So it's, it's a very complex question. Yes. Yeah. It's very true. Yes. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yes, yes. Uh, I, where I see some uh, opportunities and where most people see that government maybe is, is wasteful, that transparency and being able to see where things are being allocated in our current situation is not there. That transparency is, is virtually zero. Uh, so there is a lot of opportunity in bringing that and um, uh, budget and appropriations to the forefront to say this is where the money's coming from and this is where it's going. Yeah, I, th I think it's fair to say in in every government, even even governments as as uh, sort of mature and stable as the United States government, there still is fraud and corruption. Right. I mean, uh, in some places they know it. Everybody knows it. It's institutional. In some places like the United States, we are led to believe that it doesn't happen. We don't expect it, but we know it. We know it's happening in pockets uh, here and there. Right. Uh, so there definitely is a place for blockchain, I would say, in, in every government. Yes, very true. Now, there are a lot of complex challenges, but at this point, from your observation, where do you, how do the governments currently record their transactions? What is the process? Because when we, the blockchain brings uh, big benefits of recording the trans, uh, transactions, and that's why it's important to understand how the process is currently without blockchain. How do governments currently record those transactions? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's private. And um, and they choose, for the most part, not to let anybody know about it. Right? It's, it's all closed systems, and um, uh, you know, just with our voting, right? We all vote, and the government says, "Well, just trust us. We counted everything correctly." And uh, you know, and and the government has mechanisms in place, but um, uh, but at the end of the day, well, they control everything. Nobody has visibility into it, and uh, and they just expect us to trust them. Yes. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That's the biggest, uh, that is the most complex problem and the biggest risk that we are facing. You're absolutely right about that. So when it comes to redesigning and redefining government systems at all levels, how can we use blockchain technology effectively? 
Well, uh, and, and how long is the podcast? Six hours? Eight hours? <laughs> well, um, we, that's great. <laughs> well, we were uh, we were just at an event this morning. Uh, the Virginia Chamber of Commerce uh, on diversity, and that question came up consistently, and. Um, I, I very much enjoyed the answer because my background's a manufacturing engineer and I've always I look at things as better, faster, cheaper. Well, that is true in government. Government resources are much thinner than they've ever been. The the manpower, the resources, the funding, everything. So the opportunities within government are are say tenfold compared to the private sector by looking at how we make these business processes better, faster, cheaper. So the, the opportunities are there uh, in, a, in an enormous way. Yeah, let me give you an example. Uh, so again, because we're talking about state, local, national, and international governments all over the world, right? There are some governments where they're doing this fairly well, and there's some where they're doing it terribly, right? Um, and... Uh, uh, so let me just give you an example. In the, the Government Services Administration, right, the GSA, it's a U.S. government agency. They're responsible for the procurement of all general products and services. So, for example, the DOD buys a tank. They're responsible for that uh, procurement. But the procurement of laptops and pens and pencils for all agencies, right, that's the GSA. You know, software, IT, stuff like general services, uh, building services. So... Uh, they they looked at how long it took them to essentially acquire IT products and services. It's called their Schedule 70, right? And so what they did is they put together a blockchain pilot project. They said, look, if we have a blockchain foundation, can we speed up the process? Can we make it better, faster, cheaper? And um, and I, I don't remember exactly what, what the numbers were, but it was something like before they did the pilot, it took them four months, I think, yeah. to process a, a contract. Mm-hmm. And after they were done, it took two or three days. Yes. So be, because they could use this technology, right, and, and uh, what, what they did was they built that technology on, on top of their old technology to, to, to that sort of transition. Um, it's still in pilot, right? They haven't fully deployed yet. But it, it, it's proven the fact that the blockchain can make uh, transparency, the efficiency of the, the contract us uh, in that particular time, much better, faster, cheaper. The problem is that in the place, you know, you have some places in government where they have a great deal of control and they don't have a lot of transparency. They're the ones that you need to implement a blockchain solution. They're also the ones that may not be inspired to do that, right? Because what it does, what it means is essentially for them to relinquish their authority, their control to a more distributed system, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know that's where the battle's going to be in the places where it really matters. So we talk about in the budgeting space, right? The government gets to um, budget trillions of dollars. It gives them enormous power, right? Are they likely to say, hey, you know what? Let's just totally give up that power. That's that's not going to happen. I mean, they they are going to. Challenging. You're right about it. That uh, who would want to give up that kind of power, right? And when it uh, involves like billions and trillions of dollars, they don't want to lose that power. So that is the most uh, you know complex challenge that we this technologies will face as they try to streamline the government processes, or you know they try to do any kind of. Uh, redefining and redesigning of the system because i mean if you see go across nations governments they i mean it's not that the governments are not seeing the multiple opportunities that are possible because of this technology transformation in they can simplify their operations they can simplify data processing they can you know establish the trust file because the trust in governments is at its lowest so there are there's plenty of opportunities for them to redefine their entire system. But those kind of complex challenges, when they have to give up that power and when the, everything will be transparent, 
that's a lot of the most of the politicians are not going to go for that and that's the biggest challenge that technology will have to face uh, you know in how to uh, overcome those so from your assessment what can be done to overcome that those kind of obstacles where you know politicians are just not ready to give up that power uh it, interestingly enough um well, one of the things i believe you mentioned it earlier was that uh, uh blockchain it becomes a transfer of value as opposed to our previous recent technologies cloud uh, uh, advances in in big data and so forth those were just technologies what blockchain brings to us is that exchange of value but also an incentive program so you just have to find where the incentives are for the players to contribute where they might say oh i don't i can't give that up well all right what is their incentive well it's probably because they don't want to expose themselves where can we address that where can we fix that there's there is somewhere that there can be an incentive for them and an incentive for the technology business solution so as as advisors that's the one thing that we always walk in to say and as opposed to our recent technology solutions, yes, it's business technologists and you got to know the technology. This blockchain gives us an opportunity to make it more to a human level. So, yeah, and, you know, it's also important to understand that in government, there's a lot of good people in government, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, so we, we, a moment ago, we were talking about the bad actors in government, right? Well, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people, and especially the younger, uh, 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 more the millennial type of, of politicians and government administrators, they really want to do good. And they see blockchain as a way to do economic development, to really sort of meet the needs of their people. And um, Puerto Rico, as an example, right? You want to tell them a little bit about, about Puerto Rico and um, what they're doing down there, or maybe Atlanta or, or some of these places? Yeah, um, Puerto Rico is interesting. Uh, we went down there four or five months ago now, and because of their situation with uh, basically being bankrupt, they they embraced the ICOs and the new business models that both cryptocurrency and blockchain are bringing. Um, so they've, they've opened themselves up to that, and a lot of people are going down there to do both cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, now, something that kind of back to the incentive, uh, one of the problems in Puerto Rico, depending on who you are, um, is if you get a speeding ticket, you don't pay it. You wait until you go renew your license. And if they happen to have it on record, well, then you pay it. If they don't, eh. More likely they won't. More, more likely they won't. Right. So the thought is, oh my gosh, we can put blockchain, you know, driver's license and everything. Whoa, <laughs> people aren't too excited about that. Yeah. So and it's interesting because it, in that in that space, the government is bankrupt, and they said, well, well, blockchain is an opportunity for us to fix this problem because we can have C, we can, but there are people that will lose out on that. Yes. At the same time, the government said, listen. We believe that there's great economic development. Let's give tax credits and ta tax incentives, right? So they want the business to come in. They want the development to come in. They want the investment to come in, right? But it's a very eclectic story. It's like, yes, yes, we want this, but no, no, we don't want that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's different players that some want it, some don't want it. So for folks in this space, there's a lot of work that will be there for a long time. Yes. Sorting through all of these issues. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes, very true. So. Those are very complex challenges, but you you are right about the incentives. That if we give them the right incentives, then you know we will be able to bring this change that we are all looking for to make our uh, governments and governance processes, you know, much uh, more simpler, more effective, more transparent, and where we can trust and they're cost effective. So there is a lot of incentive, but uh, the financial incentive to the players who are benefiting with the current system, that's where the complex challenges are, that how we will be 
convince them to, you know, get out of the way so that we can go forward with the digital systems that we need for the digital global age. So it's not going to be an affair that we can manage within a few months or a few years. This is going to be a long-term process. And it's very interesting what you told about the, you know, Puerto Rico, the, the complex challenges that they are facing now because of these ICOs uh, the, and the cryptocurrency and the blockchain initiatives they're having. So uh, it seems that... Uh, Many nations' blockchain-based governance is being tested. I mean, from what you said, from what I'm reading, you know, and there is a possibility of decentralizing governance. Do you think that we will be able to decentralize governance itself, you know, at uh, all levels, local, national, global? Yeah, well, decentralized um, government. Uh, so <laughs> That's a good right topic. <laughs> So the, I think the first thing to understand is there are a lot of things that citizens can do themselves. We don't mm -hmm. need the elected officials to do that. They're, if we put together a proper form of government, this digital uh, governance model, then there are a lot of things citizens can do themselves. That's the you know one of the biggest. Right. Uh, so so let me let me address that then, because it, it's an interesting topic. For many many years, right, the government in most countries they could call the shots. Right. And whatever they said went. And people in those countries really did not have much choice. Right. The Internet started to challenge that. Right. Blockchain is going to challenge it even further. Right. Because in the past, if um, if I didn't like the economic decisions that my government made. Right. The only way for me to change it would be for me to take my family, lift up my household, go travel to another country and drop it down. I'm li not likely to do that. But today, if I don't like the tax policy or the economic policy or, or, or uh, the monetary policy, I can go to my web browser or my phone, point, click, point, click, click, and I'm in an entirely new economic system. And the government has never had to compete for economic policy before. It's, it, it's, un, it's un, unheard of. So in the U.S., for example, um, the government officials, they, they spend more money than they bring in, right? Because they're incentivized to spend more tax less. If, you, if a government official raises your taxes, they don't get voted back in, right? If they cut spending, they don't get voted back in. So the national debt continues to grow. Right now, the interest we pay on the debt is more than every government program except for DOD. So what do they do? They increase the money supply through fractional reserve lending. Whenever they do that, the value of all the money that we have in our bank accounts diminishes because when you increase the supply, the value goes down, right? So it's a form of taxation without ever having to vote on a tax, on a tax increase. Now, what hap what's happened to the value of cryptocurrency over the last eight, 10 years? It's constantly gone up. So more and more people are starting to use cryptocurrency as a store of value, right? And, and transactions. Right down the street, we have a brand new Bitcoin ATM they just installed. And as more and more people start to use cryptocurrency, right? Uh, well, let me give you an example. In three months, and just using my, 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 my cryptocurrency debit card, the difference between the time I received the money and the time I spent it, I just at like 7-Eleven, gas stations, right? You know, grocery stores. Just in three months, I made $10,000 in capital gains. The purchasing power of just that kind of loose change kind of money increased by $10,000. So if the purchasing power of cryptocurrency is, is far greater than the eroding purchasing power of the U.S. dollar, more and more people are going to start sliding over to cryptocurrency. As that happens, right, it means the value of the dollar drops. The government's got to print more money, which, which makes the gap even bigger. More people go into cryptocurrency. Right, which makes makes the gap bigger. They have to print more money, and so eventually, this spirals out of control. Yes, the government has never had, at least the U.S. government and, and many other governments now, realize that while there's tremendous benefits to uh, blockchain technologies, all kinds of cryptocurrencies, the risk to the very economic system is is starting to come up on on the radar screens. National banks are starting to realize that this threatens their very existence, right? And here's another thing to think about. Um, so I have, a good, I have a good friend of mine who's got a mining operation, right? He makes his money by mining, so he receives cryptocurrency, 
right? Well, he pays for his hosting fees. He pays all of his expenses with cryptocurrency, right? Um, that means that that money never end, never goes through a, a bank, right? Well, the federal government monitors and influences us through the banking system, right? But if the money never goes through a bank, the government loses visibility and they lose control, right? So this is this is beginning to marginalize. It's only starting at the very beginning. But if the governments lose their control and their ability to influence, if they lose visibility, if they lose control of the economic system and they can't continue to print more money. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. That they lose out and they get marginalized. You're right about it. Because, I mean, look at this, how much corruption, how ineffective the regulations and policies and uh, not just one nation, almost every nation, they... Even each, each time a new governing party comes, the, even the nature of the risks that are identified and identified and prioritized and rated and they are acted upon, they are different. So it's, it's not that the nation, the country is the focus that let's do right and let's be objective and neutral in identifying risk, but it's all because becomes, you know, politically biased. So the, Young people, they are losing faith. They are losing trust that what risks are being managed. And if these are the, you know, our value of our currency keeps going down because of the actions and decisions that are taken by our decision makers, then there is something wrong with the way we are taking decisions. So you are right that it's not the financial system only. Each and every system is at risk. And that's where, you know, the this tech, amazing technology transformation that is coming our way, you know, uh, that has amazing benefits. But it also brings critical security risk that in the sense that each and every system is at risk. Even if we talk about the how we vote and elect these politicians, the political leaders, and it seems that many nations have already started uh, I, using the blockchain-based digital voting system because these, uh, you know, elections require this authentication of voter, voters' identity. And blockchain can serve as a medium of not only casting votes, but tracking, counting, and thereby, you know, it gets rid of all the foul plays and lost records and voter fraud. So uh, from your assessment, how many nations you see that are already... Uh, you know, not only going, moving past the pilot, you know, scale, as far as the verify, verifiable blockchain-based digital voting system goes. I, I want to say I've heard of at least four or five. Uh, I think Zimbabwe is one. Uh, well, and states, too, like West Virginia. Yeah, right? yeah, and some of the states. Uh, now, what... What's what our challenge here is in the states is we look at these other nation states and most of them are even smaller than Connecticut yes. <laughs> or in population. Yes. And so what they can do at that at their scale is much simpler. Uh, I, I believe that in the in the states we'll see it happen at the local level maybe even just in uh, the school board or the, the municipality, uh, raising up to the town, raising up to cities and states. Uh, but that's going to take some time. Um, I, I think the community level can, will happen rather quickly. Uh, so getting it up to the federal level, uh, I wouldn't even want to assume <laughs> that it might happen, but we will see it. And I'm sure we are seeing it in these, in these smaller communities. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one thing about most government officials in blockchain, they don't want to be the first to fail. And there's already so much resistance. You know, the governments tend to be very risk averse. Now the private sector is moving very quickly, right? And some, something that people know in government is, they look at the speed that the private sector is moving with all of these applications and capabilities, and they see the, gl the glacier-like speed of, of government, and they're very worried or concerned that the, the private sector will leave them behind, right? However, that doesn't necessarily overcome 
the resistance, right? Because the government is, it, it has to move through a, a bureaucratic pace, right? And I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying the pace to turn a ship of an aircraft carrier is much, much different than the pace to turn, you know, of a canoe, right? And, and there are constraints, right? Large systems, many, many different players, right? And they don't have that kind of agility that the private industry has. So this is another issue where um, the rules are changing. Uh, the, the governments are, are trying, they're trying to apply old school mm -hmm. solutions, right, to this new, to this new age problem. Uh, they're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to try to regulate, control, you know, the way that they, they're used to doing for the last hundreds and thousands of years. It's, it's not going to work, right? And so um, at the same time, Governments have a responsibility for infrastructure, right? The environment, you know, uh, police and fire and safety. There, there are many, many very legitimate roles for government, right? How are they going to do those roles when the, the way that they tax, the way that they provide oversight, those, those tools may not be available anymore. So, you know, we want to help folks in government identify the risks and, and the problems, right? but then really come up with solutions because governments, we still need effective governments to perform, right? Mm -hmm. But the existing models, you know, may be broken. In fact, even the concept of having a, a government based on a, on a geography, right? We draw a line on a map and the rules on the one side of the line are different than the rules on another side. Yes. That's not true in the blockchain world. Very true. No, that that's uh, uh, that's uh, right. the difference in how the two different kinds of government governments, like digital governments as well as the our traditional governments, are going to be so different. And if we yeah. look at how uh, how all this uh, technology transformation and what is the potential of it, and how it will change the very way we govern and how we regulate and how we create, you know, policies and how we interact with citizens, everything, you know, they, they are all open to fundamental transformation. So from your assessment, how are nations, governments and the decision makers, especially responding to this blockchain driven revolution that would bring not only transparency, trackability, but the very way they take decisions Mm -hmm. you know, for any of uh, their uh, nation's, you know, business and especially with the government like United States that is so complex with so many different agencies and institutions and so many different, you know, levels of government. Uh, how will they bridge that divide? Because this kind of government and blockchain initiative, when we are trying to define the government on a blockchain, it's going to require uh, collaboration and cooperation at all levels, you know, uh, within and across the nation's government uh, and the so many agencies. How will we, how will the decision makers go uh, forward on that? I, I actually, I, I think about it in a small scale that we talked about a little bit about like the local communities and fire and police. What, you know, what if, uh, Jordan and I live in the same county and, and we vote to, and, and the community votes and agrees, let's put the fire uh, operations on the blockchain and let's build these smart contracts into it that it uses X amount of public money that we have all agreed that we would contribute for fire services or police services or uh, garbage disposal. All the things that currently that local community government oversees, well, what if they're all on smart contracts? Now there's all of that administration and you have all the arbitrage and risks into the blockchain for what might go wrong. Now raise that all the way up to defense purchasing of a tank or uh, the health care of a, of a before you go there, though, let me go back to the local yeah. thing because I, I think that there's a fundamental, really important thing. So, if if Jonathan and I live in a, in a county, and we decide to put the the fire and police on a, on a blockchain, right? Well, <laughs> um, that blockchain exists on many many different computers in many different places around the world, right? So, 
um, I live in Fairfax County. You live in Alexandria. Yeah. Fairfax County and Alexandria County, right? The, the members of the community, not the government, but the members of the community could say, well, let's connect our blockchains, right? And then the, the county next door. And, and now we have, a, we have a situation where there is a, there's a, um, uh, a statutory area of responsibility, statutory boundaries, and blockchain boundaries. The blockchain boundaries are essentially the limitations of that network. The network is in no way connected to the statutory limitations of the governing body. So now, if one of those governing bodies wants to make a, a change to the rules, mm -hmm. right, they can pass as many laws and as many bills as they want to, but unless those, unless the, the community encodes them on the blockchain, it's somewhat irrelevant. So that one of the things that the technology does is let, let's say Jonathan and I have a smart contract about some kind of transaction. And, and I take a, a sum of money and I, I, I put it on the blockchain. It's in, in escrow. And until he meets his conditions, that the, the, the contract says he doesn't get the money, right? Well, we have a dispute. We go to a court. And the judge says to me, you know, um, that's not really right. Uh, Gerard, you need to release that money and give it to Jonathan. Well, that money's on the blockchain, right? In, in the olden days, they could just go to the bank and order the bank to release the funds. But that judge, that government entity, has no authority mm -hmm. over a, a blockchain. Yes. So, so it, it's going to create all of these disparities right between our existing traditional systems which at least here in the united states work in, in other countries they don't work right yes but it, it creates an entirely new paradigm and structure and they're, they're at odds with each other yes absolutely no you're right about that it's a new way of doing things so we will have to figure out many many complex uh, questions like that that how will we solve that because i mean the, that was one example you gave and the other is about the consensus protocol how are we going to uh, agree on the consensus protocol for government blockchain because there are so many different agencies and so many uh, different departments of government levels of government and we are not even sure if everyone is going to use one single blockchain or they're going to use different blockchains and how the consensus uh, how are they going to agree on the consensus protocol so uh, do you have any uh, from your observation do you have well, any? Th thank you thank you for giving that softball so well the the consensus i mean this this also kind of goes back to the incentives you know, what is the consensus is it a 51 uh, like uh, Bitcoin um, uh, protocol, or is it a, a simply a Byzantine, uh, you know, two thirds, or is it a Tangle uh, type of of chain that you can actually set to, hey, I only want five percent. I only need five percent confidence for this this to be accepted, or I want ninety nine percent confidence before this transaction is accepted. So just in those three different models, there are a lot of options uh, that when, when solutioning this, when looking at this to come yeah. to, those, to those agreements. Yeah. Consensus in, in this context of this conversation really exists at two levels. It really exists at what, what Jonathan is referring to as somewhat of a solution level, right? What is a consensus protocol? Yes. Right. I think the thing you're also talking about is how do you get people to agree conceptually? Right. And so uh, one of the things that uh, the, we've got many projects that we're working on. Right. And one of the projects that the GBA is is working on is recognizing that we have a lot of vendors and a lot of government contracts. Right. And a lot of contracting agencies and officers. Right. So one of the projects that we're looking at right now is can the GBA create a standard for how government contractors and government contracting officers engage with each other. Can we create a public blockchain, right, where acquisition data can be recorded to the blockchain, and then companies and contract officers can interact with that data. So it doesn't matter whether they're with Arlington County, Fairfax County, Virginia, Maryland, DC, right, the Department of Agriculture, the United Nations, the EU, any government entity that is going to be acquiring products and services from any vendor, 
right, will be able to interact with the public blockchain, store data, so they can keep things about uh, you know the, the 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 history, the track record, pricing, any of that kind of data can be maintained on a global government acquisition public blockchain, but yet the companies would have control over what data they would make available and to who, but there would be no question as to the integrity of the data, right? So for example, if I'm a supplier and I have, and I routinely deliver well, or I routinely deliver poorly, right? That performance data would be on a blockchain, right? And so uh, that's part of what, because we have chapters all over the world and we have many different working groups, the G, one of the things that G, GBA is doing is helping people come together to come up with consensus standards. Like we just we just did one for training, right? And we're doing one, we're doing them in all the different uh, uh, working groups. Um, and then once we can come up with that kind of consensus standard, then what Jonathan's talking about is those groups then have to decide what the consensus protocols will be in order to validate data. So I kind of feel like the GBA is a, is connective tissue to help people all over the world figure those problems out. Good. No, I'm glad you are working on that. Your organization is working on that because that is uh, something that needs to be addressed. And we do we do need the standards for that. Now there's also another you know point that you mentioned that uh, the public chain uh, blockchain, right? The gov- the GSA. Uh, there's some of the projects that are going on through that you mentioned that they're, they're developing that public blockchain. So does that mean that the access to that government chain will be permissionless if it's a public public blockchain or is it going to be permissioned? Mm-hmm. Well, looking, looking at a, a chain and saying who has the uh, permission to write and who has the permission to read in the ideal world, these chains, uh, particularly government chains, would be public. So eventually, what data that because right now, open OpenGov, um, OpenData.gov, they have tremendous amounts of information, and it's just out there. It's out for folks to use, and people create new business models and increase the economy greatly from this data. So. If the transactions can be public, this is a whole new set of data that then can be used to create new businesses. Government by nature is, uh, how long did it take for them to go to cloud computing and open source? Because, oh, we can't, you know, we can't give our data out there. We can't give it away. So that's part of like with GBA, what we're doing is, is educating that yeah, there are some things you need to you want to keep on a private chain, but there's a lot that if it's public, it's promoting the transparency and it's giving more data to the people to do stuff with. Sure, sure. So the- I hear your point on that because government by nature has to be open. But at the same time, when we are talking about this digital world, digital system, if we don't define processes or way by which we can authenticate the identity of a nation's citizens, then there is no guarantee that people who participate on those blockchains, they could be citizens of, citizens of other countries and they are there, you know, probably to manipulate the, you know, many decisions or, you know, do frauds or all kinds of things. So right. while we do need an open, you know, public blockchain and permissionless blockchain, but at the same time, that permissionless blockchain if it's there, then how are we going to uh, authenticate the digital identity of nation citizens? Yeah. Let me hit something. Let me yeah. talk about Estonia. Um, so listen, I, I think that there's a there's a phased approach here. Uh, the governments governments around the world are not ready for public blockchain, right? It's just not it's not going to happen soon. There, all of the solutions that uh, that they're working on are 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 small private permission blockchain, and honestly, they. Uh, they're basically distributed. They've got to start where they are, right? They conceptually, going to a public blockchain makes their heads explode, right? Um, so, so starting with DLT is a, you know, it, it's I think the appropriate place for where they should start. Um, but you raise a very interesting point, right? And that is um, how much. Okay, so so let me give you an example. When I go to um, 
uh, to a bar, right? And I want to buy, and I want to buy a drink, and they want to check my ID, right? And I hand them my driver's license. Do they really need to know my name, right? Do they really need to know what my what my birthday is, or, or what my weight is, or my hair color? No, I mean all they really need to know is that I'm old enough to drink, right? And so one of the trends that we're seeing is uh, in the, the 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 blockchain space is segregating the data. So, you know, when you when you go to Target and you swipe your credit card, do they really need to know what your zip code is, right? Do they really need to know because of their access to the data mark how many diapers you bought last month, or or what your average uh, spending is, or your income, or whether you're married or single? No, but but they have access to all of that data now, and uh, we, we may live in a world one day where we we make the statement. You don't need to know all those things about me. You only need to know this for us to have this transaction, right? Um, and um, the other thing that's really fascinating is you said, well, how, how do you know that you're in this group or that group? Estonia, right, which I want to ask Jonathan to tell you about a little bit, um, they've created, uh, they, they've recognized that, that the boundaries don't exist as much anymore. So they'll allow anybody in the world to become an e-resident of Estonia. I think you pay $200. You can then participate in the Estonian government, right? It, you know, it, interact. You can register your business. Um, and and if you and they, I think they're charging $200 per person to do it, right? Um, and so there's a lot of experts who believe Estonia can become the wealthiest country in the world because the concept of borders and transactions, they're, they're, they're seeing that in an entirely different light. It's a different paradigm. Do you want to yeah. fill in the rest of Estonia? Yeah, uh, just to, to go on that a little bit, I'm, I've been reading about entire nation states that are just creating themselves out in the ocean. And they're completely decentralized, completely blockchain, their own cryptocurrency, absolutely autonomous government citizens. Now, I, I have always had the question, well, when someone decides to come attack them with a submarine, who's going to protect them? <laughs> so I think there's still some problems with that model, but the concept of building that nation state. And Estonia, Estonia is fascinating because, yes, they, they're completely on the chain. Every day they, they publish the public key that you can go and see it, what all the transactions were the day before. But it's how they got there that's so interesting. And it was one of their large neighbors attacked them and just destroyed cyber the, the government. Yeah, yeah, just through a cyber attack, destroyed all government records and everything that kept the country together. So they said, okay, well, that's a pretty high risk. Let's mitigate that. And let's let's create, let's build from the ground up an entire new society, 100% on blockchain. And so, that is a really interesting solution to a what presumably would be seen or is seen as an impossible risk to mitigate, but they've done it. Yes, so they've, done, I, they've done it. You are right. But like you said before, that it's a very small nation. It's a very tiny yeah. nation. And a lot of things are doable, possible there. But the fundamental concept of a world without borders, irrespective of whether it is cyberspace, geospace or space, I think it's uh, far, far away, probably centuries away. I don't see any way that nations... Uh, current decision makers will give up their control and, you know, agree to the open borders, you know, in everything, in just, even in cyberspace, even in the digital right. world. I don't see it happening. And at the same time, I also don't see that how we will manage those complex challenges because, yes, it's very easy to, uh, you know, become e-citizens of uh, Estonia. and But how when, you know, millions and millions of people will start you know trying to get benefit from those nations the wealthy nations that's where you know the complex challenges will start emerging or when there is a, there are security threats emerging uh, like you said this you know submarine attack or you know any kind of attack electronic warfare cyber warfare or space warfare then right. who is going to protect so there are very complex challenges in mm -hmm. theory it's very 
I appealing to say that you know it would be nice to have uh, nations without borders, but to in the reality there are many many huge complex challenges to that huge security risk emerging mm-hmm. from that. So it would be interesting to see what you know the world citizens or even what the nation citizens want. You know, and as we see in United States that there is a huge backlash you know against the uh trend of you know globalization that you know uh let's accept everyone and let's you know uh, make uh, everything fair and balanced for everyone that's very huge backlash but uh, going mo- moving away from that topic mm-hmm. i mean it's very complex and it will take hours to discuss <laughs> now since blockchain is a distributed ledger and if uh, many government agencies have access and if many government agencies are trying to use the same blockchain how will we maintain functional integrity and separation of power because uh, as we see in united states each branch has you know uh, there is a you know integrity to that and separation of power in that can i can i address that for yeah um uh, so i want to transition from the topic we just talked about in, into this new topic but but there's an element there's an element of the uh, old topic um that we have to address okay and you know <clears throat> Hey, Kath, Kath, we're on a live podcast. Um, so the thing that I want to talk about, you know, you, you, you said it, that countries are not going to give up that, uh, um, that sovereignty, right? And I completely agree. But um, national power really is a component of, of maybe four things, right? Military power, uh, diplomacy, economic power, and information. Right. So all all governments basically use those four pillars of power. Right. In order to um, exert their will within their boundaries. Well, the Internet and information is challenging those boundaries. Right. The next big one is economic power. So, for example, I I used to do a lot of business in China. China is concerned about capital flight. They're interested in controlling their their economy. Right. And they were afraid that a lot of money was going to leave China. So they, they basically set a rule that said, an individual or company can only tra- transmit uh, change a certain amount of Chinese RMB to foreign currency. Well, so when my customers would pay me, they would have to go to the bank, file an application, they would have to wait a couple of weeks, and then finally, three to four weeks later, I would get paid. There would be a lot of fees. When they decided to start paying me in Bitcoin, right, because Bitcoin is not technically leaving the country, right? Bitcoin doesn't exist in, in China or the United States. It's a distributed ledger that exists everywhere. Right, so they would convert their their Chinese RMB to Bitcoin. They would pay me in Bitcoin, right? And at that point, my transactions I re- I would re- receive the money within within minutes. And at the time, there were hardly any transaction fees. So when when governments start to lose sovereignty over the information through the internet, and then just like we talked about before, as their economic sovereignty starts to to erode because people are moving out of the fiat currencies into the cryptocurrency space. How long will that take? How fast will adoption be? I, I don't know. But what you've, what you've now just done is you've knocked two of the four pillars of national sovereignty out from, from governments, right? Now, we still need governments, we still need security, we still need all that, but if, if governments lose, lose those two pillars, we need to still have those other two pillars. We need to have safety and all that stuff. And I, and I would throw the environment in, right? But I don't know how we're going to do it. We have to do it, right? But I don't know if the same rules will apply. And it is not that the governments will give up that sovereignty. I think that what's going to happen is um, they're going to be challenged in new ways. And I don't know how they're going to respond. It's, it's going to be fascinating. Yes, it is. It is going to be fascinating. And hopefully that there will be some area, some systems that will be able to develop uh, on a global scale. And uh, some, you know, systems will have to keep private separate and, you know, sovereign to the, those nations. So that way we have uh, boundaries between the integrity of a nation's uh, sovereignty as well. But at the same time, we have the access to, you know, global uh, markets and global database and global uh, intelligence that's developing so it will be interesting to see how uh, everyone nations its government industries organizations and academia work together and come up with a consensus on how 
which systems to redefine and redesign and which systems to keep it private to uh, the, those uh, you know particular nations. So it will be interesting to see how we all work together. But from yeah. your assessment, which government projects that you see that are based on blockchain uh, to redefine and redesign that portion of the government are trendsetters across nations. We are not talking only about United States, uh, but from all across nations. And where do you see that the problems need to be and what kind of problems do you see that we need to overcome for the broader global adoption of global technology when it comes to governments? You want to do first and then I'll throw my No, please. <laughs> Please, <laughs> um, so we have a couple areas in, or which what I would call low-hanging fruit. We have a couple areas where uh, I believe um, uh, are big impact areas. And um, so let, let me just throw a couple of these. I think voting is a, um, uh, is a low-hanging fruit, right? I think voting mm -hmm. is one of those things where everybody can kind of agree we need to have a, a, a trusted voting systems. There's flaws in the voting system. It's a relatively easy use case for blockchain. I think voting is, is one of them. I think in some areas of the world, uh, land titling is very, very uh, important. And so we'll start seeing, where voting, I, I see we, I, I see voting can start deploying almost everywhere at any time, right? Land titling uh, being deployed in areas where those systems are not trusted, right? Um, the other one that I see um, developing in, uh, in the more first world countries is public health, right? Uh, because, because in the area of public health, there's very little resistance to that. There's really no, there's not a whole lot of losers in let's do a better job with public health, right? Um, let's find ways that we can put uh, uh, food supply chains, the pharmaceutical supply chains. Uh, the CDC has, has got a pilot project where they're, they're collecting data from hospitals and different um, uh, medical institutions so that if they see an outbreak of a, some kind of an epidemic, it's on the blockchain, everybody can get to it fast, everybody can write data. It, and so I think public health is a, is a great use case. Um, and I think that one of the most important ones, but one of the slowest uh, is in the area of, uh, of public, public financing, right? Uh, you know, the, the, how we manage our money um, at, at a governmental level, I think is a great potential for good, it's going to be very, very slow, long, and hard to get there. Mm -hmm. So those are just mm -hmm. some of the use cases that I see. Well, the, the uh, CDC is a great example. Uh, it wasn't 10 years ago, you know, they didn't, we didn't have Twitter or 15 years ago. When Twitter came out, CDC saw the power of it because they could see something happening or being reported in a way that they could have never seen before in a time frame they could never see before. Now we we're talking about a permissionless, you know, public chain in government. Perfect example. Yeah. And maybe if, emergency response falls into this. Yeah. Situation. Folks that can if citizens can report these things to a permissionless chain, the time for CDC to react could I mean it would be faster than Twitter right now. So there are use cases where that permissionless chain will work. Um, I think touching on on all the other topics. Um, the, food, the, the Walmart thing too? Yeah, well, the, the food safety is a really, you know, that's a big one. Uh, in fact, just today, uh, Pepperidge Farms has to recall 3.3 million units of goldfish yes. because they found salmonella. Well, that's 3.3 million bags of goldfish they have to destroy. Not only bring back to the, from the market, but destroy. Uh, when If a salmonella breaks out in a grocery store or lettuce or, or whatever, the grocery store has to eliminate all the fresh produce in their store and destroy it because they don't know what happened or where it came from. Walmart and others have done these studies and said you know, what took several days, they were able to accomplish in several seconds to say, this, this mango came from this location. They, 
it was on this truck. These are all the things that it contaminated, not all this other stuff that we've got to throw away. And the the economic value of, of having thrown that away is tremendous. Well, I'm so, thinking about this. I, I think in, on the Walmart example, uh, prior prior to their their pilot, it, it took almost seven days for them to trace the origin, the, lo the location, the date time uh, of a, of a mango, right? And then after after it's done, you're right. Yeah. It's a couple seconds, right? Um, but imagine the impact of that kind of information on a public health environment. There's an outbreak of mad cow disease or something like that, right? Um, I think the the opportunities in that space, uh, you know, supply mm -hmm. chain, food safety, pharmaceuticals, public health, yeah. I think is uh, is phenomenal. Agriculture rule is a big hit. It'll it'll be a big impact. You know, not only from this food farm to table, but also from the genetic modifications of the seeds yeah. and being able to manage those. So, so, so exam, imagine this, right? If there's a food supply chain, right? And the smart contract says that as the truck moves from point A to point B to point C, et cetera, right? There's temperature sensors. And so the smart contract says that the, the shipment has to stay under a certain temperature or within a certain temperature raise. Bring it back for inspection, right? That the, the, the grocery store would not accept it because it's outside the bound. The smart contracts could, could build all these efficiencies into the supply chain so the contaminated or, 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 the, or the rotten food never even got to the store, mm -hmm. right? I, actually, I'd like to touch on just a few other kind of um, low-hanging fruits. One, education. Uh, uh, down in Puerto Rico, they have to report how many students are in their school, and if they have over 100, they get to keep the school, and they get the money and everything else. Horrible fraud in how many students are actually in the school. But look at it beyond that to say the parents and the teachers and the kids, their grades, their homework assignments, from pre-kindergarten all the way to their doctor. The credentials and and there's credentials along the way. I think there's a tremendous opportunity in that area. Or you take uh, NARA National Archives. That's what they do. <laughs> it's the archive stuff, and and that being able to be on the chain, the the amount of effort and work that it takes now tremendously changed. And you know, even the Library of Congress. You know, well, so, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. If there's an agency, I can probably find a use case. <laughs> yes, very true, very true. And uh, if we can digitize pretty much anyone and you know anything and mm -hmm. blockchain. So you're absolutely right about that. So would you like to? What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about not only Government Blockchain Alliance, what your uh, organization is about, but what are your initiatives and uh, where the young people, especially those who are really trying to make a difference, who are visionaries, technology experts, and are fed up about the uh, inefficiencies of the uh, you know governments or that they are seeing in the nation where they should focus and how they should go forward as they you know try to redefine and redesign the nation's governments. Well, it's a government blockchain association, right? So if you're, if you're, I want to make sure your your viewers aren't googling the wrong organization. <laughs> yeah, government blockchain association is gbaglobal.org. You want you want to start off and then I'll throw myself. Well. Uh, I'll I'll let I'll let Gerard uh, talk about GBA because I like the second part of your question. Um, I think I think the next generation and generation behind that I, I think I think they're at a very interesting and and unique opportunity. They grew up without their identity. They they grew up completely without any concept of really uh, keeping identity they it just went out there and that and that's how they think that's how they live now um, so if if getting that identity back is a desire of theirs I don't know how they're gonna do it but I think they're gonna figure it out before we do I think they'll know what how to make it happen in a way that because we're too programmed 
in our ways right now in our our history and the way we look at identity uh i th i think the solution is there and i think they'll find it uh, only because they they come from a unique perspective of it um i think i think risk for them also will be completely different uh if we look at risks now like food poison that kind of stuff they're they're not going to know that they're never going to see that because we will have these systems in place so i i can't i don't even can't imagine to predict i mean if i could predict what what they'll come up with and how they'll solve their problems then I would be in a pretty good place. Uh, but what I do know is they're going to approach things differently, just like we approach things differently than the generation before. Yes. And there's so much opportunity with blockchain and cryptocurrencies that they'll, they will find what, what best works. And I think they're, they're going to help us find what we can implement you know in, in in our time so i really look forward to to seeing what what comes of comes of the kids the next generations um they've got they've got a lot of opportunities and not not a lot of barriers uh and i, I think that's their nature is they don't necessarily ask for permission they so maybe they'll ask for forgiveness, but that's what makes them innovative yes. and and have no boundaries. So very true. Um, okay, so from the government blockchain association perspective, I, I would say what I would like your viewers to um, to do is check out our website, gbaglobal.org, right? There's a lot happening in the blockchain space. Um, there's happening in countries, close to 80, or sorry, uh, 80 cities, but I think probably about 30 countries. Um, and uh, we're launching 200 new chapters in the next four months. Um, we have um, we have we have chapters in, in Canada, Washington, Washington D.C., Florida, uh, Washington State, you know, Texas, Mexico, Puerto Rico, London, Paris, uh, Moscow, Beijing. Uh, we've got chapters in Africa, South America, I mean, uh, literally all over the world. <clears throat> and we have about, I don't know, over 20 working groups. We're about to launch 20 more in every subject, uh, asset asset management, budget preparations and tracking, cannabis, contract management, cybersecurity, uh, economics, education, training, financial, governmentology, healthcare, identity management, um, intellectual property, land titling, cyber. See any industry uh, supply chain, we've probably got a working group who are working on it, and we re we really want people who want to who really want to be in this space to be part of this thing and to roll their sleeves up. Right, we're not an association um, for for uh, spectators. Right, they're, they're, you can go to our website and learn a lot, but we're really an association for leaders. Right, so if somebody wants to lead in this space. Um, come to our website, find out about the training, get educated, um, become certified, right? But mo most importantly, join a working group, join a chapter, connect mm -hmm. with other people. We're, we're, we, it's a social media platform, so it, it, it really enables people to connect with people locally and globally. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, there's a lot to do, and there's a lot of opportunity. And for folks that want to make a difference in this world, this is a great place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we'd love to come, come alongside and help them do that. Great. No, you are absolutely right. There is a lot that needs to be done and there's a lot of opportunity for everyone to contribute for solving the big problems that uh, nations are facing today and will be facing in the coming tomorrow. So thank you so much, Gerard and Jonathan, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on the government blockchain revolution and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the ongoing blockchain transformation across nations governments and the way i see it is that even if a single individual can come up 
with an idea to innovate using blockchain and bring the much needed transformation to the nation's government and governance model based on the discussion we had today. This discounted dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Wonderful. So thank you so much. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup videos or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.